Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. When it comes to trial experts, attorneys know that some gamesmanship is common, but one lawyer went too far and hit an ethical landmine when he didn't disclose financial dealings with experts in a bellwether trial against Johnson & Johnson. Senior legal ethics reporter Andrew Strickler will join us later in the show to unpack the incident and tell us more about how expert testimony really works. And later on, we'll end the show with some discussion of rapper Dr. Dre's attempt to block an actual doctor from registering a similar sounding name. As always, I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. The gang's all back. This is nice. It's nice to have us all in the room together. Love to be podcasting with all my friends. This is nice. The boys are back in town, although in this case, the boys and the ladies. I never went anywhere. So it's true that the boys are back in town. Guys. Did anyone see Chuck Grassley, our man Chuck Grassley, up on the hill today? Just, just saying, like, like, hey, any of you uh, Supreme Court justices going to retire? <laughs> no, <laughs> do it. I missed that. Do it now. <laughs> Did he uh, like lightly, l- l- not lightly, yeah. just just straight up saying like you should retire immediately? I'm go out on a limb and say that Ruth Bader Ginsburg is not going to listen to any of it. that. No, yeah, and no. I doubt, I doubt Kennedy. I don't know. It it seems like any outside the the the, the like within the building speculating on when Supreme Court justices are going to do anything, let well, alone retire. In the history of the Supreme Court, foolish. I don't believe it's ever worked for someone to be like, hey, want to retire? Yeah. You going to right. do it? How about you retire? Sit I mean, down. They're pretty uh, strong-minded people on the Supreme Court that yeah. make their own decisions. That's they have the a lot whole of, point of being the Supreme Court. They have a lot of judgments <laughs> and it's opinions. True. I, I kind of check out uh, on Grassley unless he's like tweeting about having uh, killed a deer with his car again. Uh, <laughs> sure. So if he wasn't talking about that, I I, I must have missed it. I also Thank watched, you for us I watched a few minutes of, of a hearing today thinking there was going to be copyright stuff. And he he was sitting there with like his – he had like a little light over his – and someone tried – an aide came up and tried to fix it. And he was like, I already fixed the light. Oh, I love it. <laughs> it was amazing. It was like like nice. Aiden from Georgetown just got, just got scared straight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I fixed the light. So as much as I'd like to talk about Grassley for the yeah. whole show, because that's fun, mm-hmm. we do have some really serious things to talk about this week. Alex? Yeah, no real smooth transition here. We're just going to talk about uh, a rather unpleasant story that I'm sure everyone's uh, at least seen something about. Uh, New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman uh, is now former attorney. Uh, New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman. He stepped down on Monday after four women accused him of uh, physical abuse in a long story published by The New Yorker. And, you know... We've talked about it on this show. Everyone is talking about it. Uh, stories about you know men in seats of power who have been accused of mistreating women and mm-hmm. the fallout that comes from that. This one um, took on an even greater significance, both because of how powerful Schneiderman is and the fact that he's been an extremely vocal advocate um, for like the Me Too movement and the Times Up movement uh, in his capacity as one of the you know I don't know depending on who you ask one of the ten or so most important uh, law enforcement officials uh, in the country. Yeah, this one's a tough one to talk about, even though we discuss these types of issues on the show pretty regularly. But for anybody who wasn't following along, can we give them sort of the broad brushstrokes of what happened? Yeah. So as I said, uh, four women spoke to the New Yorker and accused Schneiderman of. Uh, you know, the, the sort of term we landed on here was non-consensual physical violence. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll explain later why that exact phrasing is kind of important here. Uh, all four of the women uh, were former romantic partners of Schneiderman. Uh, two of them went on the record, actually. Uh, those women's names are uh, Michelle Manning Barish and Tanya Sevilratnam. Uh, I believe that's the pronunciation. Um, all of the accounts from the four different women have various um, divergences, but they all basically... 
allege Schneiderman of having physically struck them in the face and elsewhere uh, to such a severe degree that they, some of them sought medical attention uh, in the days following that. And almost always this was in the context um, of a sexual encounter. So it was, you know, while they were, um, you know, in a romantic situation and Schneiderman basically struck them. This is not uh, sort of an easy thing to talk about. Um, and the, the the fallout was very, very swift here. It was. I mean, I watched this news break and it seemed like it, it took no time at all before he was it no was, longer Cuomo, the New York Attorney Cuomo General. Cuomo quickly weighed in and, and called for him to resign. Yeah. I mean, it was, and it's, uh, again, as I said, given the, the, the role he's played um, in other investigations uh, of stuff like this, um, it was a matter of hours. I forget exactly how long before he stepped down. Um, his response, though, was uh, somewhat worth noting. I mean, as he said, he he sort of didn't deny. It was very odd. I mean, it was sort of a non-denial of, like, some of the stuff having happened. But he basically sort of said he was into, like, I mean, for lack of a better term, like, rough sex play and stuff like that, um, which is gets into this whole other kind of avenue. But I think it's best to just read his statement in full. And he said... In the last several hours, serious allegations, which I strongly contest, have been made against me. While these allegations are unrelated to my professional conduct or the operations of this office, they will effectively prevent me from leading the office's work at this critical time. Uh, he later added on Twitter that, you know, uh, you know, I am involved in these situations, women consensually, and that's uh, that was my understanding. Yeah. Um, and that's sort of where we're at here. Well, but it's interesting that he brought up the, you know, it, it doesn't involve the, the conduct of my office or the conduct that I right. professionally because – this story has a lot of echoes from from you know that that it first of all it was broken by Ronan Farrow yeah. in the yeah. New Yorker who broke a lot of the Harvey Weinstein stuff exactly and Schneiderman was involved he's been a vocal advocate of the of the Me Too movement he's he's pushed for investigations of Weinstein he's he's I think that surprised people a lot but um, I think this is just another proof point that any man in power can have issues like this yeah. that are waiting to come out. We saw this a bit with um, Al Franken was mm -hmm. a little similar. He'd spoken out about women's issues. That's before. true. Yeah. So this isn't the first one, but it seems like a very egregious example of right. that trend. Yeah. I mean, if, if it, it, there are many important takeaways, one is sort of to, you know, stay guarded about, I think, like male allyship and things like that. Right. But, um, you know, we'll see. Um, but uh, the sort of next turn of the wheel here for our purposes is that, of course, Schneiderman is gone, but as tends to happen in cases like this, there's a whole sort of legal and investigative proceeding that's going to go on, and that's already um, begun, and it's complete with some, you know, typical sort of New York politics palace intrigue right. uh, stuff going on. So shortly after Schneiderman, uh, or sh shortly after the article was published, uh, Manhattan District Attorney uh, Cy Vance uh, basically began an investigation to get to the bottom of these um, mm -hmm. allegations against Schneiderman. Uh, and uh, so he was, while he was preparing to do that, uh, just a day later, um, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo actually booted Cy Vance off the case and instead handed it to the uh, Nassau County DA. Okay, so why did that happen? Well, it's interesting you should ask because uh, Vance, if, if that name rang a bell for anybody, yeah. Vance's removal from this investigation also has echoes of the Me Too saga and movement um, in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein allegations. Uh, it came out, I can't, I think it was not the New Yorker, I think it was New York Mag that actually printed um, a story that basically um, accused Vance of 
scuttling an investigation into Weinstein like right. three years ago yeah. before any of this came out. And that, of course, raised a huge ethical red flag right. about the, about uh, Vance and the way his office runs. Well, and then weren't there campaign donations to Vance and yeah, other yeah. things like that? So, yeah. All kinds of stuff. Um, and after that happened, um, I guess that was, that was last year, um, Governor Cuomo started an investigation of Vance, kind of an audit of how that office is handling mm-hmm sexual assault uh, investigations. And so because of that- So I guess that, Cuomo was basically like, you can't be investigated for not pursuing one of these things and then also be tasked with investigating- This incredibly right. high profile, uh, you know, right. that's happening within, you know, the the government like structure. It was, just, it was just too much. You know how like conflict works. It's like even the appearance of conflict is sure. too much for right. us and we got to take you away. Vance, for his part, uh, did not hide uh, his displeasure with the move. He sent a letter to Cuomo on Tuesday basically saying, the only potential conflict here is one of your creation um so i mean they're they're going at it um for their part uh, a lot of victims advocates groups uh uh, praised cuomo for doing that saying like only a a really truly independent uh you know prosecutor investigator is there uh, no woman we can task with this well that's a fine question and uh that is already underway to some extent uh as i said it uh the schneiderman Inquiry has now actually been referred to the uh, referred to the Nassau County DA, who is a woman named Madeline Singus. So she's handling that. And actually, after Schneiderman stepped down, um, a woman named Barbara Underwood uh, was sworn in as the acting AG. She's been the Solicitor General for several years, so she's minding that shop now. Um, of course, um, in, in a sort of related thing, we'd like more women to be considered for these jobs uh, without this kind of uh, dramatics leading to their yeah. uh, to their ascension. Definitely. But that's where we're at now. Um, like we say, a, a, a pretty unpleasant development that um, we're going to have to keep our eye on. Well, we're staying in New York. Yeah. Lighter subject uh, as our second story. It's about celebrities getting pulled into court, which is always sort of... I a- love we talking love about that. Everyone does. It's it, it's it's very funny because I, I've covered a strange number of these situations where like people are trying to depose like pop stars. Yeah. Like, there, there was a case against Justin Bieber where he was caught. He said he was out sick and missed his deposition at the last second. And then he literally posted on Instagram, like him doing a beer did. bong. Yeah. Uh, I mean, who among day. us, you know, <laughs> Taylor Swift got sued a while back and they said she was like making up tour dates to avoid trial. So it was like right. or to avoid deposition. So yeah, right. A lot of fun stuff happens when when you get into these situations. Similar situation this week sort of came to a head. Uh, the SEC has been trying to get Jay-Z to <laughs> testify in this ongoing investigation. And this week, a federal judge compelled Jay-Z to, to come to court next week and testify. Okay. The SEC? What does that have to do with Jay-Z? I mean, I'm used to you bringing to the show things where it's, you know, it's right. copyright. It's sometimes, sometimes like trademark makes sense, but yeah. SEC can, is weird. I well, he is an entrepreneur. Yeah, he is. I, I can communicate this in all letters. Jay-Z, SEC, why? <laughs> I like that a lot. Yeah, okay. Well, in any case, what's, what's, the, what's the deal here? So the SEC, the Security and Exchange Commission, uh, is investigating possible securities law violations by a company called Iconics Brand Group. Okay. Um, they own like a lot of little brands that like you see in department stores or in – they're like – they own Echo. They own – Oh, okay. Um, but yeah. so like they own like a bunch of small brands. Nice. Um, and in 2007, they bought – Jay-Z's uh, Rockaware okay. Oh, okay. for $200 million. This is a podcast so no one can see, but I got my diamond in the sky. Hell yeah. <laughs> if you feel the vibe. So okay. Jay-Z's still involved, but this Iconics Brands owns Rockaware. And the SEC is looking into these like hundreds of millions in write-downs that, that Iconics did in relation to Rockaware. 
Um, and they need information from Jay-Z. Okay. What could they need from him if, if it's this brand that now owns it and well, is the so, one being investigated? Uh, so I mentioned that he's still involved. They want they want to know about these write-downs and they want to know about the transaction between him and the company. They want to know how much his the you know the Rockaware trademark was valued at. They want yeah. to know what his involvement is, all sorts of stuff like that. So they said they sent him uh, subpoenas in, I think it was November and February. And that he hasn't budged Didn't, and hasn't uh, done okay. hasn't done anything. So last week they went to court saying that that they need you need to we need like an order compelling him to to cooperate with these subpoenas. And what does he have to say for himself here? He has I not mean, he has not been I mean, thrilled about it. I mean, he's clearly not he's clearly not in a hurry to testify or Correct. anything. So yeah. so the uh, so Jay Z's attorneys say basically that they made several offers to the SEC to come in and do this in a circumstance that like made sense for his tour schedule and his busy schedule. So it seems like the hang up from what I can understand is that he wanted to make it guaranteed for one day or less. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> wanted some thing that, that said it may go more than one day and they've been fighting about this for months. Look, he's got dad rap albums to make. He can't be here. <laughs> but so talking to federal regulators, all really day. great quotes from Jay Z's uh, pushback on this. The agency's approach quote, raises serious questions about whether this exercise has transcended any investigative purpose and crossed over into a celebrity hunt. Oh, okay. Jay-Z's attorneys also said that uh, the the whole effort to get him into court was, uh, quote, driven more by governmental fascination with celebrity and headlines than any proper investigative purpose. So, like, okay. not really holding back. Yeah. But the judge stepped in here, right? He did. So uh, this week, uh, a Manhattan federal judge basically gave the SEC everything they wanted. He said that Jay-Z's testimony probably shouldn't last more than a day. Um, but he said that if you put hard limits on that, it sort of incentivizes people to, um, quote, run out the clock. Yeah. So he said if if you, you, the SEC is more than welcome to ask for more. The power quote here was, quote, the testimony has been delayed for five months, and I do not intend to tolerate any further delay. You know what's really funny about this? Like Jay Z as a as an artist has kind of like in my in my opinion like sort of critical consensus like lost his fastball because like he's just like a rich guy now mm-hmm. and he doesn't have a lot of like edge or things interesting things to say. Mm-hmm. And it's very funny because like SEC litigation is just the exact kind of legal entanglement <laughs> that like that, that that rich people often find themselves. Oh, in. totally. He's like he's got like tax problems related to a sale of a of, of a clothing brand. Yeah, he doesn't have to worry about like the NYPD like getting on him for slinging dope, and now he's worrying about like like it, right. complex financial transactions. He's got he's got ninety nine problems, and at least one of them is an ongoing SEC investigation. And another one is making his uh, May fifteenth uh, court date. Right, beat me to it. All right. Our main segment this week is the bizarre story of a trial lawyer who repeatedly told jurors that his expert witnesses had no financial incentive to testify, when in fact he'd paid them tens of thousands of dollars. It was a strange deception, given that expert testimony is almost always subject to gamesmanship and compensation, and it cost the attorney dearly. An appeals court last week tossed out a $150 million verdict, saying the award was marred by the lawyer's falsehoods. Here to discuss the case and the weird world of expert testimony is Andrew Strickler, senior legal ethics reporter. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks for having me. 
Always good to have you here on the podcast, especially... Six-time guest, I think, yeah, we were saying before. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. A- Andrew Sixpack, that's you. <laughs> I'm back. I love doing it. Let's go. Yeah, so it's really good to have you for these um, broad things that happen to attorneys that are weird and sometimes problematic, and you're really good at explaining them to us. So can you give us a little bit about this attorney who got in trouble? Well, Mark Lanier is an extremely successful plaintiff's attorney. He's been involved in huge uh, product liability, medical malpractice, medical uh, product cases, um, uh, Vioxx, um, uh, Merck, uh, you name it. He's uh, won asbestos-related cases. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's a very big name in the plaintiff's bar, uh, and he was the lead trial attorney uh, is a lead trial attorney uh, in this very large suit against Johnson and Johnson over these metal on metal hip implants. Okay, and so we we sort of know the broad outlines of how these product liability cases go. They often involve expert testimony, often from physicians or scientific experts. And throughout the course of this case, he's basically representing to the jurors on multiple occasions that the experts that he's trotted out for the plaintiff's side are unpaid, right? Yeah. So what happened is he is the lead trial attorney on the second Bellwether case uh, over these metal-on-metal hip implants. And before the trial starts, he is in contact with a father and son doctor team who have experience with uh, patients and these metal-on-metal implants, and they agree to testify as expert witnesses. Uh, Each one gets on the stand, and Mr. Lanier, in the course of their testimony and introducing them to the court, describes them repeatedly as unretained. They are here because they uh, are concerned about the product. They are concerned about patients. They want to do the right thing. And you, the jury, should look on them as uh, as people without any financial interest. These are their their unvarnished opinions. And that would be very persuasive, but that wasn't totally true, right? Well, as it turns out, it wasn't true at all because what had happened was uh, in the run-up to the third Bellwether trial, he was extremely successful. They got a huge, huge verdict uh, in the second one. Uh, His experts are deposed by the defense in the run-up to the third Bellwether trial, during which the both doctors admit that, in fact, they had gotten these large checks uh, from Mr. Lanier after their testimony, right. the older doctor, uh, Dr. Maury Sr., also said that before the second Bellwether trial that he had discussed compensation with Mr. Lanier and had suggested to Mr. Lanier that uh, the attorney make a donation to his school, uh-huh. his alma mater, which Mr. Lanier had done. None of this was mentioned in the second trial that turned out to be a huge problem. So what what struck me when I was reading your story was that, you know, I don't cover this stuff day to day, but my understanding was that that these experts are always paid, that they're always, to a certain extent, a hired gun for one side or the other. And that's why both sides put them on. And, and that's how it works. So it felt weird that, that you would try to hide the ball on this. Well, that was what really uh, stood out about this situation was because, of course, that is true. Expert witnesses are paid. Everybody understands that. There Mm -hmm. are many, many people in many fields who make their entire living being expert witnesses. They are paid handsomely in many cases, engineers, architects, doctors, construction experts, you name it, get on the stand and they're paid. There are a lot of different conduct rules, a lot of different bar opinions related to expert witnesses and lawyers and testimony, et cetera. But the fact of the matter is really the rules are very, very simple. 
uh, when it comes to retaining expert witnesses. Almost all jurisdictions, definitely including Texas, where this trial took place, uh, bar you from paying experts on a contingency fee basis, mm-hmm. okay. which makes sense because you don't want your experts to have skin in the game sure, in terms sure. of trying to you know land some big verdict. Uh, but they are, and every day people are testifying uh, while being paid on an hourly rate. And as long as the rates are quote unquote reasonable, Nobody has a problem. And isn't that always something that's like the subject of some back and forth in trials like this? Like, I mean, there's, there, there's always routinely. questioning about, hey, what are they paying you to be here? And it's, it's, all, it's all kind of part of the dance, right? right? Very routinely, very okay. routinely. Opposing counsel will, uh, will call out whatever the uh, other side's experts is making and imply or directly charge them with, hey, you are a gun for hire. You're here just because you're going to get paid. You get put up in a fancy hotel. You fly down here. <laughs> Which I guess is why... Um, the jurors found this so persuasive that Lanier got to come in and say, like, oh, they don't have any interest in this other than doing the right thing. Right. And it was interesting because Lanier very intentionally set off his, quote unquote, non-compensated, non-retained experts against the defense experts. And when some of the defense experts were on the stand, he played exactly the game that a lot of lawyers play. <laughs> yeah. You're the hired right. gun. You're a paid expert. Wow. You're that's here so, well, because the, Johnson & Johnson is paying you. The, the thing is, like you, and we, we began with you telling us that he is not he's not some neophyte or some or some first timer who got in it. over his skis. It just seems like an odd tack for him to take. Far from it. And his explanations for this in the appeal uh, did not come off very uh, persuasively. Well, let's yeah. let's talk about what exactly happened to him in all yeah. of this. So this ended up at the Fifth Circuit. What did they say? Well, the obviously Johnson & Johnson appealed on any number of different claims. On the point about the experts, uh, the appeals panel was extremely upset and came down hard on Lanier in a way you don't often see courts doing, mm-hmm. uh, basically said this was intentional deception. This was a lawyer who was making up uh, you know, post-fact explanations for behavior that <laughs> wow. simply could not be justified. Uh, and again, they were very clear that it wasn't that the that he had paid these people. It was that he had misrepresenting the financial arrangements. Uh, it was notable that the in the deposition testimony that uh, kind of revealed that this payment had had been made. Uh, it also came out that Lanier uh, had paid these two experts with these big checks with a letter that said. Thank you very much for your pro bono work. Here <laughs> is your check. Your gift. <laughs> nice. And the court said, "Well, if you can just call it pro bono and call, <laughs> right. you know, that's basically, yeah." They said this is basically <laughs> a blueprint for avoiding, for how to skirt this. yeah, for yeah. how to skirt the rules that we all understand. So, well, can we talk a little bit more about other sort of gamesmanship that happens? This seems so egregious, but. It's a little bit of a murky world with these expert witnesses. Aren't there other sort of things that do sort of skirt around about paying them? Well, you know, there is an understanding that there is uh, how you define what a quote unquote reasonable payment is. Right. Uh, There's some gray area there and everybody understands that. And everybody understands that if you push it too far, somebody's going to push back. Uh There are certainly situations in which... uh, Experts have been accused of accepting more than their regular 
hourly fee, for example, or they have um, been allowed to or had a huge bill signed off on by defense or plaintiff's counsels, and they've gotten on the stand and had to justify, well, how is it that you spent 20 hours at 400 bucks an hour producing this six-page report? There are implications that yeah. they're padded, essentially. Right. Um, another common story that you hear from people uh, in the trial world is lawyers who are out shopping opinions that they have written, drafted themselves to various experts and saying, what do you think about this? <laughs> How much do you like this opinion? How well does this jive? No, it doesn't work for you very well. I go to the next guy and the next person and the next person. Once you find the person who seems to be really on your side on your opinion, they sign off on it. It's another way in which lawyers uh, sort of are gaming the system a little bit. And again, it's the kind of thing that uh, when people are probing at trial, uh, you're going to get questions about. So it seems it seems like the read here is that this is already sort of a sort of it feels a little less than honest kind of world that we're working in. This idea that people are paid for their opinions and you shop around for the best one that supports your case. But Lanier here went further. Yeah, and uh, I mean I think most lawyers would say it's not a question of dishonesty; it's a question of presenting the best possible sure. case with right. the best possible witnesses. And if the other side is doing the same thing, which they almost certainly almost, are, yeah, right. uh, then all is fair. Sure. Uh, where Lanier got into very odd territory, though, is presenting experts as unpaid when, in fact, he did end up paying them. That right. is just a very strange situation. So do we have something that we can, you know, if you're a trial attorney and you're looking at this, it's obviously sort of an exceptional situation here, this level of, of sort of deception about it. But is there a takeaway for, for you know, what we can take away from from this ruling on what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. Yeah, did anyone say anything more substantial than don't do this <laughs> instead? Right. Well, uh, I mean, I think that again, the the sort of basic rules of the road that lawyers, most lawyers, really do understand. Uh, are pretty simple. You pay your experts by the hour. You don't pay them after the fact. The deal is cut before they ever get on the stand. Uh, and as soon as somebody asks on the opposing side or the court, you tell them. Uh, it's all up front. Um, and whether or not you're shopping for more favorable opinions before a trial or, you know, you're agreeing to, uh, you know, to up to a certain uh, cap that is a generous one for a particular expert witness, well, that I think is generally considered within the bounds of smart advocacy and getting your case made as best as you can. So it sounds like what we're talking about here is if you pay – you must say. Oh, that's weird. Perfect way to end this, Bill Donahue. I'll, I'll be here forever, Thanks, Bill. <laughs> Thanks for being with us, Andrew. You're welcome. Thanks, Thanks for having me. We like to end our show with something offbeat. And we're going to stick with rappers. Second rapper show. story of the day. Yeah. yeah. Bill, what do you want to talk about? Well, I want to talk about Dr. Dre. Yeah. Which one? But I want to talk about <laughs> the Dr. Dre in Pittsburgh. You know the one. I don't. No. <laughs> Tell us about it. He's an OBGYN. Okay. His name is Dr. Dreon M. Birch. Okay. And I'll tell you what. He wants to go by Dr. Dre. I mean, I don't blame him. That's what people call him. That's what his 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 business persona is, 
D R A I. Gotcha. Dr. Dreon. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm with you. He's an OBGYN. He's separate, in Pittsburgh, like I said. Separate so, from the rapper that we know. What rapper? Oh, oh okay. Yeah. <laughs> so he applied back in um, 2015. He applied to register his name, Dr. Dre, and uh, a logo featuring it um, along with OBGYN and media personality. This is to like market himself in the community? Correct. Or? And okay. I think to be like a like a you know to go on tv and talk about stuff like this and and everything else so he applied for a trademark registration on that and somewhat unshockingly the original dr dre rapper yeah who is still dre if if anyone wasn't following along true um (laughs) he filed what's known as an opposition to block this guy from from registering his trademark okay wait hang on what kind of doctor you say he was again he was an OBGYN. So it's nothing but an OB thing, baby? Is nice. that what we're talking oh, about literal here? literal babies. Right. Great. Well, I know. Nice. It so, works two ways. <laughs> it does. So the trademark trial and appeal board, the uh, the the body that rules on right. disputes of this nature, uh, <laughs> issued a ruling last week saying that, no, no, Dr. Dre, we know you're famous and we know that most people know you as Dr. Dre. And this guy's name looks and sounds a whole lot like yours, but these goods... These services that he yeah. wants to use these for, so different than what you use it for, did they that basi- no one's going to be confused. Did they basically have to say, like, Dr. Dre, you're not actually a doctor. Right. You need to chill, man. Like, no yeah. one's going to think that this OBGYN in Western Pennsylvania is you. Well, it's, I mean, it, it, we're kind, we're laughing about it, but he's he's something of a litigious, uh, or he's, he's, he's no stranger to this type of action, right? He is, yeah. Okay. So Dr. Dre files these kind of things somewhat regularly at, at uh, TTAB, which is the yeah. acronym for the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board. Um, yeah, he, th- this is, this is not new territory for him, but, but it's an interesting thing because of how, you know, they do look. They do look and sound identical. Yeah, but yeah, it, well, yeah. also, you have to presume that the actual OBGYN wouldn't want to be called Dr. Dre if not for some association there. Because otherwise, like, why yeah. would you want to go by that? It's sure, not. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. And, and like, they, they stipulated that they knew who he was and everything else. Um, yeah. But just, yeah. Is it, uh, now, I've been, I've been meaning to ask you this for a while. And since we're talking about, like, sort of the gulf between the two, like, doctors and the goods and services they sure. provide. If I wanted to open a beet farm. Uh-huh. And I wanted to call it Beats by A. <laughs> I mean, he'd probably—I mean, he'd probably file something if his record is any indication. But do you think I'm in the clear there? Look, I'm not an attorney. I know you're not, but I trust your opinion more than mine. Uh, it probably wouldn't be worth your time. Yeah, all right. Well, you got to think they're going to put you through the ringer to let before they'd let you let okay. you do that. Okay. Um, well. But I think this is an interesting case because this kind of stuff—I cover this stuff all the time—and like. These kind of sort of absurd situations happen in trademark law all the time where like, no, but like the root of this law is that people are going to be confused by yeah, these two. Right. Confusion is the main is no the name of the gonna game No one's going to be confused there. by this. It's yeah. so silly. And people rely on this idea that like we have to, we have to be vigilant or we're going to lose our trademark. And it's sure, like, sure. no, you're not. <laughs> you're good. I promise. Well, well. I mean, we've been talking about, I, I think we're about done talking yep. about Dr. Dre on this episode. So we will see you on the next episode. Hell yeah.
That'll wrap up today's show. Thanks for being with me, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Later, homies. We also have our producers to thank today, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guest, Andrew Strickler, our contributing reporters, RJ Vote, Jody Godoy, and Pete Brush. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about any of the legal developments we talked about today, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast. And we'd love it if you left us a review. We're now on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And when you leave a review, you help others find the show. Thanks, and join us again next week.